This is the sixth podcast in a series on the writings of the Apostle Paul. If you think that it's easy to understand the Apostle Paul, then I suggest that all you've done is to listen to somebody's interpretation and just taking it right in and thinking, ah, that's what it means. If, however, you feel that it's difficult to understand the Apostle Paul, I applaud you. Because it means that there must be deeper meaning behind the literal words. Very often, the literal words are anti-Semitic. Is that what Paul is really saying? So the purpose of these podcasts is is to help you learn how to get into the depth of the meaning of what Paul is writing. What I'm doing is I'm following much of what I've written in the first book I ever published, called The Law is Not a Curse, Paul's Midrash in Galatians. This particular book is very academic. I wrote it after I completed my dissertation, after I received my PhD in biblical studies, and it's really addressed to the academic community. There are not only a lot of footnotes, and there's a bibliography after each chapter, but the way I'm explaining things is really explaining to Um, to the academic community. So what I'm doing in these podcasts is I'm trying to make it easier for you to understand because uh, most of you who are listening are are not steeped in ancient languages and in Hebrew way of thinking. So what I'm going to do in this podcast is we've left Paul's life, which I think is a very important thing for us to do to really understand Paul, but we're ready now to get into Galatians And I'm going to work with you on the incredible uh, artistic nature of the language. You can't just read it literally and understand it. You cannot do that. If you would like to reinforce these podcasts, I encourage you to purchase the book, which is available on Amazon, The Law is Not a Curse, Paul's Midrash in Galatians. Let me start right now to explain that his letter to the Galatians is organized into a very careful structure. Now, let me go over the structure with you. He starts with an epistolary greeting, which is common when you write a letter. You know, hello, everybody. This is me. Okay. Then he follows with the purpose of the letter, which I'm not going to go into. Then follows biographical narrative to establish Paul's authority, and I'm not going to do that. Starting in chapter 2, verse 15, is where he begins this Hebraic artistry of language. That's followed by what sounds like a narrative of the Galatians' early experience in the Spirit, but he's going to tell it to us in a very artistic way, that if you can't get the artistry of that narrative, you're not going to understand it. That's followed by what I call legal midrash. There are two kinds of midrash. Well, first of all, midrash simply can be used in different ways. There are books of midrash in the Talmud, but I use it as methods of Midrash to uncover depth of meaning that resides below the literal. Haggadic Midrash I call legal Midrash because it's what Paul does. He has these methods of digging out of Scripture a depth that has not been known before. So we have legal Midrash in chapter 3, verses 6 to 14. Then what comes after that is more Hebraic artistry of language. It's not Midrash, but it's just using language in such a way, it's pointing to something deep that is not on the surface meaning of what is being said. 
That's followed by a narrative comparison of Paul's gospel and the false gospel. The false gospel was Jewish believers in Christ saying that these new Gentile believers had to know the law and they had to be circumcised. In other words, they had to become Jews and they had to know the law. That is followed by Paul speaking allegorically, which I touched upon. Then comes Hebraic artistry of persuasion. So after all this has happened, we're going to get into this language of persuasion again, which is very artistic, and it ends with an epistolary benediction. Now, let me explain that there are four traditional interpretations of Paul's work in Galatians. Paul is trying to tell us something about the law and works of the law, and that has generated significant confusion despite four common interpretive positions. The Protestant Reformation spawned two broad traditions that competed not only with each other but also with Catholicism. In the last few decades, a fourth view has emerged. So, as you listen to these brief descriptions I'm about to give you, try to identify what is your own tradition. I think this is so important, you know, not don't just believe me, don't just believe traditions. You have to start by saying, okay, this is this is what I've been taught. This is this is this is what I believe. And you want to anchor yourself on that before you listen to me, because I'm going to be probably coming up with suggestions that are very different from what you've heard before. The first one that I'm going to explain to you, the first interpretation, is known as Lutheran theology, which perceives salvation by grace alone. I once had a Lutheran minister explain to me it's like dancing around a maypole. We're all excited because God has given us this eternal life by grace, and 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 that's that's the Lutheran position. So salvation is through faith alone, by Jesus Christ alone. Works play no role in justification, but are the result of faith in Christ. So that if if you're believing in Christ, maybe you do good works, maybe you don't do good works. But if you really love him, you're going to do good works. But it has nothing to do with salvation. The Bible, according to the Lutheran position, is viewed as containing two distinct types of content. There's law and there's gospel. And law is not viewed in a positive way. But the gospel is. I mean, the gospel is the good, the law is the bad. So the emphasis is on the gospel of grace through Christ. The purpose of the law, as Lutheran theology interprets Paul, reveals Christian guilt and the need for salvation. The term Lutheran designates this broad tradition because it originated from Martin Luther. However, numerous denominations are the inheritors of its basic doctrine, including Baptists, and the modern evangelical movement, which tend to view justification by faith alone. Okay, next we have the Reformed theology, which is a second competing theological system and approach that originated at the time of the Protestant Reformation from John Calvin. A direct descendant is the Presbyterian faith, but it too has evolved in numerous branches, The Armenian movement followed in the steps of Calvinism as well as the Methodists. The Reformed approach focuses on the sinful nature of mankind. Salvation is by God's grace alone, but 
Salvation is conditional on faith in Christ Jesus, whose death atoned for the sins of all. There is more of a conditional aspect in the Reformed position. Predestination, which has been adopted by some Reformed branches and not by others, nevertheless captures the the dichotomy, the separation between the depravity of those outside God's realm and the sanctity of those within God's realm. Now, the third interpretive position is Catholic theology, which has traditionally leaned even more toward the necessity of man's participation through faith in Christ and views certain actions as evidence of genuine faith. For example, seeking forgiveness from a truly repentant heart leads to God's grace, but God will withhold that grace if you fail to seek forgiveness or ask merely in a mechanical way. Faith must be genuine. If it's not genuine, you're not going to be saved. And faith is, furthermore, an ongoing requirement for salvation in the Christian theology, which means that even on your deathbed, you ask for forgiveness. So it's, it's an ongoing requirement for salvation. The Orthodox Church also belongs to this widespread tradition, which I call Catholic theology. I recently moderated a panel discussion on the question, what is the role of works in the life of a Christian believer? Four denominations were represented by the panel members. Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, and Orthodox. All of these panel members agreed, they all agreed, that works were important in a Christian's life. But division occurred when I asked a very provocative question. How are works related to the promise of salvation? That is, can a believer lose his or her eternal life by failure to do good works? There were various responses, ranging from good works as the loving response to God's saving grace. That's the Lutheran theology, that, you know, you're saved no matter what. Just go have a wonderful time, dance around the maypole, and hopefully you'll go do some good works. Another one was good works as a sign that one has been saved by faith in Christ. That's the Reformed theology. And that was the uh, Baptist minister who, who did that. You know, if you're not doing good works, you really haven't truly believed. Only if you have truly believed are you going to do good works. And then another one was good works as a necessary requirement of true faith. That's the Catholic position, and that was expressed by the Orthodox priest who was, who was there on the panel. Now, when we turn to the way that the Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians, has historically been viewed and is still perceived today, we find that all three of these interpretive traditions have tended to understand Paul with varying degrees of certainty as promoting a distinct separation between works of the law, which is Judaism, and its contrast, God's grace, through faith in Christ. But recent academic interest in Galatians has questioned this traditional understanding of the first three traditions that view the law in a negative manner, juxtaposing the law in contrast to faith in Christ. Support is growing for a new and fourth suggestion, which offers a more positive view of the law. Understanding Paul's methods of Midrash in Galatians, as my study suggests, and the deep meaning that Paul uncovered about the power of the Holy Spirit reinforces this 
fourth interpretation. The fourth proposal views the law in a positive and godly sense. It was launched in large part by two publications by Christer Stendhal, who suggested that Paul was a Jew who continued to attend the synagogue and participate in Jewish practices. He did not convert from Judaism to Christianity, says Stendhal. Instead, Paul continued to be a Jew, answering God's call to be an apostle to the Gentiles in order to witness Yeshua, the Messiah, whom God had promised. You know, I was looking for one of Stendhal's books in the university library in in Albuquerque. I found it. It was in paperback. And someone had drawn a swastika on the back cover. So this concept, this fourth interpretation, really stands in contrast to the first three. And whoever the person was, he, you know, was, or he or she, held to one of the first three interpretations and was refusing to understand that, you know, Paul was a Jew, he remained a Jew, he did not convert to Christianity, he continued to practice Jewish practices, but he was answering the call to preach Yeshua, the promised Messiah, to Gentiles. Uh, Another author, two other authors that if you're interested, and you'll find this in my book, more information, E.P. Sanders is is one who is a a breakthrough on this fourth tradition. And then uh, James Dunn is another author. These these three authors really broke ground (laughs) and, and, and paved the way for this fourth tradition. Now, Despite recent academic investigation prompted by this fourth interpretive proposal, there still remain many unanswered questions. So we're not home free yet. For example, has God's gift of the Holy Spirit replaced the need for the law? What does it mean that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes? Should Christians merely avoid legalistic practice of God's commandments but adhere to its spiritual principles? And what does Paul really mean in Galatians by works of the law? However, if Paul is using ancient methods of artistic Hebraic persuasion in Galatians, followed by methods of legal midrash, which we have not yet fully understood or appreciated, but which I have worked very hard to understand and will be explaining to you in these podcasts, then perhaps Paul's epistle to the Galatians will disclose the answers to these questions, and I believe they do, if we understand Paul's artistic presentation of giving us you know, his, his information. We need to understand Paul's method of Hebraic artistry of language that he used to prepare the Galatians for the startling new understanding he had uncovered from the Hebrew Scriptures. That new understanding is going to come in the Midrash. But before we do that, it's it's going to take some time, it's going to take several podcasts for me to explain to you how he, he manipulates language. I call it the artistic use of language. He does things that are startling, that, that cause us to say, wait a minute, Paul, what are you doing? And the answer is not in the literal words. Um, and, and it's a whole different way of thinking. It's a Hebraic way of thinking, actually. And we have not been taught that way of thinking. We're going to begin by identifying with the Gentile Galatians, because I'm, I'm working here in my, from my book on, on Galatians. Until Paul had brought them the dramatic news that Yeshua of Nazareth was the promised Messiah of the Jews, 
who had been raised from the dead as God's promise of life to all who believed in his son. They had been pagans, steeped in idol worship. After Paul had spent considerable time with them, they had become part of a group within the community of Galatia that believed in Yeshua, the Messiah. After Paul left Galatia, this Christian group was made up of both Gentile and Jewish believers. The Jewish believers, you know, they had been taught that you have to know the law in order to please God, and you have to be circumcised as a sign that you belong to God. And they were telling these Galatians, this is what you have to do. In a sense, they were saying you have to become Jewish. You have to know the law, you have to be circumcised, you have to become Jewish. So, a foundational part of the instruction by these Jewish believers who had emerged as the leaders of the group, I mean, because they knew the law, would certainly have been God's promise to the Gentiles. That promise is in Scripture, and they would have been teaching that promise to the Gentiles. And in fact, Paul refers to this promise in his letter. He wrote, all the nations will be blessed in you, Abraham. So I think it's important for us to understand God's promise to the Gentiles, all right? Because Paul's going to make a, a big deal of this. It's in Genesis. It's in Genesis chapter 12, where God tells, he's talking to Abraham, and he says, I will make you, Abraham, a great nation. Now, that's in the singular, and it's referring to the nation of Israel. It, it means a great people, it, and it's done in the Hebrew singular, all right? And it goes on, I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. Now listen to what follows. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth, now this is in the plural, it's not singular, it's the plural, the mishpachot, the families of the earth, which represent the Gentile nations, will be blessed. So here's the first promise. God says, okay, I'm going to make Israel great, and I'm going to bless these all these Gentile people as well. For those studying the Torah, as the Gentile believers would have been doing with their Jewish brethren, this prophetic passage to Avram, that was his name before it was changed to Abraham, is only the beginning of an unfolding expansion of God's fundamental promise to the Gentiles. Now, by Gentile, that's referring to anyone who's not a Jew. As the Genesis narrative progresses, so God's promise to the Gentiles also expands with increasing revelation. For example, in Genesis 17, 5, we just finished reading in Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. Now we're moving forward to Genesis 17, verse 5. Here is where God changes Avram's name to Avraham. The new name means father, not father of a nation, which would have been Israel, but father of many nations, which would include the Gentiles. We remember that in the earlier foundational passage, God had promised to make Avram a great nation, presumably referring to his direct descendants, the people of Israel. But now we learn that Abraham will also be the father of many nations. This expansion seems to relate to the blessing that God will bestow upon the Gentiles through Abraham. Now, Paul's going to take that up and turn it into uh, a legal midrash argument, which we'll do in a later podcast. So in Genesis 17, God not only changes Avram's name to Avraham, but also declares that Avraham will become the father, implying descendants 
of a multitude of nations. Nevertheless, the promise that God revealed to Abraham is cloaked in mystery. And this is very typical of Scripture. You know, it'll reveal something, but you have got to get into the habit of asking question after question and understanding that there's a whole lot more to this. For example, how will God bless the Gentiles? Will they be required to become Jews by their circumcision and knowledge of the law? When will this happen? Will God bless all the Gentiles or only some of the Gentiles? Paul is going to answer these questions. Now, there are numerous theological interpretations, and you know, you may have been taught one, but we're going to go into Paul, and we're going to see exactly what Paul says using this Hebraic language, artistic language, and methods of Midrash. Paul is going to answer these questions using ancient methods of Midrash that uncover previously hidden meaning from Scripture. But first, he must prepare the Jewish believers, not the Gentile, but the Jewish believers who are teaching that you had to know the law and you had to be circumcised, to hear something that will contradict their tradition. He must move them from their comfort zone to hear something dramatically new. And it's going to be something dramatically new for you also. Not all of it, but some of it will be. Um, this is where I'm going to end this podcast. And in the next podcast, I'm going to, we're going to start going into Paul's method of persuasion using this Hebraic, it's almost like massaging the words or maneuvering the words. It's very artistic. And I'll explain to you what that artistry is, how it operates, and how, how it forms patterns that we have to see these patterns. So I will join you in the next podcast. <laughs>